Dr. Adam Batena is a longevity doctor in the UK and co-founder of Span Health, a data-driven health coaching company which was built to increase human performance. Span helped members optimize sleep, nutrition, and exercise with science-based experiments. It was acquired by 8sleep in 2022 for an undisclosed amount. Adam is really interesting because he's a pioneer in medicine. Longevity doesn't really exist as a specialty, at least in the UK, but he's creating his own niche. Improving the longevity and health span of people requires a broad and complete knowledge of human physiology, but it also requires a rich understanding of behavioural psychology and how to incentivize people to act today in a way that future them will be thankful. Or put another way, instead of putting out fires, doctors like Adam are trying to stop or at least delay the fires from happening in the first place. We talk about Adam's story and how he approached building Span, his approach to optimising longevity, as well as some of his personal testing stack. Hope you enjoy. The, the, the way my story started was I moved to London to start uh, training here in the NHS from Jordan. And I wanted to meet people in the startup scene, in the healthcare startup scene. And just like yourself, uh, you're just telling me about, you know, you, you moved to London and you, were, uh, you wanted to meet um, as many people as possible. The, the way I did that was I literally went through um, a list of startups on angel list that are working in healthcare. I just like searched every single startup in London that is working in healthcare and started to reach out. And I was like, you know, this, I'm a doctor, this is my background. Can I help with anything you're working on? Anyone that is working on something interesting. I was like, you know, this is my skill set. Do you think I can help in any way? Um, I met a few people, you know, made a few connections, uh, met my, who later became my co-founder. Uh, who was working on a different project at the time. Then uh, we became friends. I, I started helping him with his uh, health using uh, metrics. He's, a, he's a, a tech guy. He measures everything about himself. Uh, so we started uh, having that collaboration and he uh, got a lot out of it. And so we decided that maybe we should turn this into, into a product. And that's where it came from. What were the first steps you took in terms of uh, building span. So you meet the co-founder, you both have this kind of relationship building. What were the next things you did? So w one of the things that we worked on early on was he, he measured his uh, glucose level using a CGM. So we thought that it's our, our initial hypothesis is we want to build something, a platform where we can coach people for longevity. We called it longevity coaching. But our initial hypothesis was who are the people who are most in need of something like this? Uh, and we identified them as being people who are pre-diabetic, right? People who are just starting to develop diabetes or just starting to notice that they have some kind of metabolic problem. Uh, they're not like that bad that they need a medical intervention just yet, but they want to do something about it. And that's where, that's the initial focus we started with. Um, so our app was focused on a CGM and optimizing uh, glucose using nutrition. But we then noticed that, uh, so our, the growth was, wasn't that um, fast and we were kind of struggling to find product market fit with that approach. And I think our initial hypothesis was wrong that um, we tried to focus on people who need this the most, but that's not necessarily people who want it the most. People who uh, maybe are in that category or are diabetics, uh, especially in the UK, expect these services to be free on the NHS. They don't uh, pay for services like this. 
and they also might not be interested in, you know, optimizing health, you know, th that might be why they've reached the level of uh, diabetes or pre-diabetes. So when we are kind of reevaluating where we are um, and our initial hypotheses, we started analyzing our users and doing extensive user research. And we found that there was a segment, there was a user persona that uh, was using the app, was using CGMs, but they didn't have diabetes. They're actually very healthy people, but they liked the coaching aspect of it uh, just to optimize their health. And these were usually people who work at tech companies, engineers, these kind of types who are interested in data, but want to interpret that data and want that health coaching experience. So we started focusing on that segment. We ditched the whole uh, diabetes metabolic syndrome angle, and we focused on, on our actual real interest, which is longevity and optimizing general health. Once we did that, we actually started seeing growth. And that's when we really started hitting our stride. That's an interesting paradox you mentioned between the people who need the stuff the most don't necessarily want to use it. And the people who potentially don't need it as much, they're quite healthy. They're the, the biggest uh, uptake for it. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this because there's criticism in this industry that a lot of these companies, a lot of these services are just chasing after the worried well and people who you're not going to have that much impact on, whereas the people who would have the most impact, you're not reaching. I've always thought that that's not a bad thing. I think it's across all industries that you go for early adopters and then eventually uh, the majority come that way as well. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, everyone knows that, yeah, you go for the early adopters and then you kind of go, go down the, the curve. But it's identifying who are the early adopters for your product is, is the problem. So in our case, our initial hypothesis was, was wrong. And that's where a lot of user research go, comes into it. And that's where I like this article by uh, Paul Graham, who's uh, one of the founders of YC. He talks about how you should uh, do things that don't scale. And that just means rolling up your sleeves and delivering the service or whatever you're providing yourself, even if it, that doesn't scale. Um, if you know, you can't have the founder of the company delivering, you know, the founder of Uber isn't driving Uber, right? Uh, Uber cars, uh, that doesn't scale, but uh, initially you should do the thing yourself and you should have that in a close interaction with uh, your customers. And that then gives you those insights that you might not discover if there's, if there's a, a distance between yourself and the users. And that's, I think what we did right early on to identify that maybe our approach isn't wrong. We were in a, um, a bad position as a startup where we were growing very slowly. And the problem with very slow growth is it's not bad enough that you're like, we need to change right now. We need to do something um, about this. It, it kind of gives you this false idea that you, you might like with minor tweaks, you're going to be able to accelerate growth. So maybe it's a marketing problem. Maybe it's a branding problem. Maybe it's like, you know, you start deploying the, a few tricks here and there, but that can go on for a long time and it can kill, kill companies. And, um, in our case, I think, uh, yeah, we eventually identified that we have to, you know, do something radical. Otherwise we're, we're never going to reach the uh, growth we need to be sustainable. So initially you went for the pre-diabetic crowd and that wasn't that successful. And then you kind of pivot and the caricature would be the tech bro, the people who are into kind of all this yeah. health optimization stuff. My question to you is that 
within the groups you've been successful in with this kind of stuff, have there been any surprises for you? Because I think it's obvious that tech bros are into this kind of thing, but are there any groups that you were more surprised about finding? Yes, there's a big persona, a big user persona who are older folks who are probably in their 60s or even 70s, uh, not bros, but, you know, interested in their health and they're starting to really face, you know, serious medical issues or potential medical issues and they want to do something about it. They're optimized with, when it comes to most general guidance, uh, you know, with regards to nutrition, sleep and exercise. So if they go to their GP, their GP is like, you know, your weight is good, your BMI is good, blah, blah, blah. But they want to take a next step. They want to take that next step of optimizing every single thing to gain that just extra mile of, of health span and, you know, potentially um, improve their health just that bit more. And with those groups, do you have to modify your approach at all? Or can you just go and give them the same kind of product you target to a 20 year old? Yeah, there's a lot of personalization that goes into it. Um, and that's where a actual human coach come, comes to play. Um, we're not at a point yet where we can uh, make all these predictions and all these recommendations automatically. Um, a lot of it is individualized and it comes from the coach and their experience. Um, and it, a lot of it is at the end of the day, comes down to accountability as well. Uh, a lot of people know what to do in many cases, but they like that reassurance of having someone check in with you regularly who knows what they're doing and also who can look at your data and identify any early warning signs of something going off or just give you those correlations that you might miss on yourself. So what happens next in your story? So you've pivoted towards this group who are uh, different to your original group. How do you change what you're doing or what specific steps did you take next? So we changed the branding of the, the website, um, the messaging. We focused it on longevity, uh, longevity fitness, we called it. Um, and we started providing insights on sleep and nutrition and exercise uh, where we, before that we were only uh, focused on, on nutrition marketing wise. We started uh, looking into those, these communities of, um, as you said, tech bros or, uh, you know, the uh, startups, uh, people in these, in these communities. And we started creating content and the, the main driver of, of users was uh, the content that we created. We would uh, create um, quite specialized content on our blog. Um, and that's something, a big part of my job was actually writing content for the Span Health blog, where we would talk about different aspects of longevity and uh, health, and we would go into the details. So we built a bit of a community around, around our content, and that would drive the uh, uh, subscriptions. So you're producing this really specialized content. And although it sounds like obviously that it would work, one of the things I find difficult in this space is that building a community seems very, very difficult and very time consuming. I mean, is there that thought where you're building a startup, you're trying to grow now and this kind of stuff, you know, you're relying on SEO, social media, all of these things, this can potentially take six months, a few years. What I'm asking is, was that something that was working quickly for you? Was that quickly driving users? Yeah, I think it's more like you need to identify already existing communities and cater to those communities rather than try to build a community around your own brand when you're a small brand. So uh, what we were doing relatively well was identifying 
people who are interested in what we're talking about and giving them that um, information for free in, in form of a blog post or um, you know social media content. Podcasts were, were a big uh, part of our strategy as well. We uh, we did reach out to you know many podcasts. We did uh, quite a few podcasts in the US. Um, yeah, talking about our approach and our story. And a big part of your value add is not only writing this content, but the kind of uh, cred you give to the whole thing by being an MD. And I wanted to ask you because longevity medicine, at least in the UK, doesn't exist as a specialty. And I wanted to get your thoughts on A, the path you chose to go down in clinical medicine, but also if you were starting again, which specialties you think would be interesting? Because in my mind, I think geriatrics, endocrine, general practice, these are the kind of ones that come to my mind. Yeah, I, there isn't a, a longevity specialty. I, I went down internal medicine because I felt like it's more it's more representative of kind of general medicine. Um, and then uh, decided to specialize in oncology because the science behind it is very similar to the science of aging. So the science of oncology is also uh, well established and you can spend a lot of time learning about cancer. And uh, in the Hallmarks of Aging paper, which is a landmark paper in, in the uh, longevity space or aging, um, published in 2013, uh, in the opening paragraph, they do talk about how the science of aging is basically similar to the science of cancer. And that's why they modeled the Hallmarks of Aging paper around the Hallmarks of Cancer paper. So that's what kind of led me to go into oncology. Um, but if I was starting over, I think probably endocrinology is probably one that is, is high up uh, because a lot of the aging stuff does play into um, endocrine, uh, endo endocrinopathies. So definitely endocrine is, is probably high on the list. Or GPs. The problem with uh, GP is um, it's you only do like kind of, um, you train a lot on, on, on following guidelines. Um, and a lot of these things are kind of, uh, uh, longevity in my view is ultra, ultra, ultra prevention. So it's like, um, instead of just targeting, uh, people who are at risk and providing economically uh, viable screening programs, longevity is kind of taking a step earlier and starting like super, super early. Um, and there are a few kind of uh, groups around the world who are developing protocols and guidelines around this, but there's no consensus around it yet. That's an interesting point because um, on the scale of, you know, starting with primary care, which is potentially earlier than secondary care, which is earlier than tertiary care, it seems like if you really want to have an impact in longevity, then to go even earlier than uh, GP or primary care, the next step would be public health probably. It, it seems to me that if you really wanted to, you know, extend the lifespan or health spans of as many people as possible, you'd go into public health. Yeah, maybe or start a company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think so. It, it depends what you're looking at. Are you, do you want to like have an impact on average, or do you want to have an impact on one person or like on individuals? And I think on an in, in, in individual level, you have to go down the route of doing internal medicine, maybe oncology or endocrinology or geriatrics. Can I pick apart this statement that you're talking about, which is that you wanted to have your impact through entrepreneurship. That was the kind of yeah. vessel that you chose. And wh wh why is that the case? Why, why did you particularly vibe with entrepreneurship as a, as a medium for that? Because it's a way of creating real impact that is sustainable, that doesn't need uh, kind of uh, 
governmental or like or support by large organizations. So it's something that you can, so early on, we, we were thinking of doing a kind of a version of SPAN within the NHS for people who are, who have pre-diabetes or diabetes. Um, and in order to do that, you need to provide, you know, you need to do a large scale or like relatively large scale clinical trial, and then uh, provide the outcomes of that and show that the solution is economically viable. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is fine because you're dealing with public money. But that's a really long road for a startup in order to kind of uh, establish yourself. So the quickest way to start trying uh, trying your solution is uh, to go down the startup route and go directly to consumers. The most important thing with uh, finding a solution to anything is to reduce the time between idea and your hypothesis and actual implementation and the fastest way to do that and to iterate for, uh, quick is is by building a company i think can we talk about the next steps of span and the story and i'd be particularly interested in not only the growth and things that worked for you you mentioned kind of content marketing also things in growth that didn't work for you and then maybe just scaling the whole operation as well yeah. So early on, we also tried to do like some uh, marketing through influencers on Instagram and different social media platforms that didn't work for us because I think for a few reasons, first of all, we weren't talking to the right audience, like someone who was on like, what's that reality TV show? Um, something Island, Love Island, uh, Love Island, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> an ex Love Island contestant probably isn't going to be talking to people who are who are our audience um and we were quite naive in the beginning we would like reach out to people just because of their numbers and they had a bit of like health background or like they, they talked about like uh, health and fitness but what we didn't do well is it's really narrowed down not everyone who was into health and fitness is going to be in, into wearables and health tech and uh, optimizing for longevity so it's, it's quite a niche segment that is growing but it's still quite niche. So after that, we started focusing on micro-influencers and that really didn't work either. Micro-influencers who are like targeting our niche, that didn't work that well. The reason for that is I think we were just on the wrong platform. Like Instagram is probably not a great platform to go deep into um, the nerdy stuff. But what really worked well for us was Twitter. So Twitter became our main mm -hmm. acquisition uh, or, you know, the top of our funnel actually for um, a big part of it uh, was Twitter. And so what we would do is we would start interacting with people on Twitter. And it seems that people on Twitter are just more like the people that we were targeting and the, our customers. And we found that most of our customers, if not all of them, had Twitter. But a lot of them didn't even have an Instagram. So that should have been a signal early on that, okay, we're probably focusing on the wrong medium here. So what happens next in the story of Span? We uh, started growing. Uh, we kind of uh, found our stride. This was around uh, like early pandemic uh, time. So we focused on our niche. We continued to build the business, um, expanded the team. Where we, we got to a point where, so we did a few rounds of funding. We did a pre-seed, then a bridge round. And then we started a seed round. We did a, also a kind of a, a crowdfunding round around that time as well. But then around that time, we started to develop a relationship with 8sleep, uh, Matteo, the CEO of 8sleep. Um, and we found that we align on many things 
they have the same vision as, as us. Um, we just like the team. We vibe with them a lot. Um, and eventually they suggested that we join forces and it kind of just made sense to do so. We were aligned on the mission. Um, we had a lot in common. Um, so we had to make that decision. Do we continue building on our own or join someone who is bigger than us and who can accelerate the mission? Um, so we decided to go for it. One of the themes in your story, even say when you first came to London or meeting Matteo or even, you know, building your kind of social media and user presence is that you seem to have a knack for building relationships, networking, that kind of thing. Is there anything that you think that you do well or that you've picked up about this kind of thing in terms of building relationships with people in the professional setting? That's a really good point. I, I don't deliberately try to network, uh, but I don't shy from you know, reaching out to people, asking them questions if I have them, um, and even helping people. So if I see a post from someone who has a certain problem, I, I, you know, offer a solution, um, I, I do stuff like that. I guess that's um, a way of, of building relationships, but mostly I think the most important thing is people want to meet other people who have done stuff, who have built something. And once you put yourself out there and show your work to the world, people will start reaching out to you. So I think the best network is, is a network of people who are building similar products and want to learn from each other. One of the things I wanted to discuss with you was how you being a practicing clinical doctor affected how you approach SPAN or even just your broader mission in this space. Because I think sometimes when you look at companies where it's purely entrepreneurs or like tech bros or whatever, you do sometimes think like, this is really cool, but a patient would never use this. The type of person that you want to target would never uh, benefit from this. Are there any things that you kind of applied from your clinical side into what you did? That is so true. Uh, and that's something that is actually lacking in the health tech space is more doctors with actual clinical, clinical experience uh, to come into the space. And this happens so often where I talk to someone in this space who is building a solution. Um, and as you said, I, you just have this um, intuition that this isn't something that like really solves a problem for clinicians or patients. It's, it's not how it works. And it's actually a skill, a really important skill to be able to uh, translate that experience and intuition into clear advice. And I think that's something I, t I talk about a lot with doctors who want to transition out of medicine into industry or into startups or whatever, um, is uh, that our experience as clinicians is actually really valuable uh, but we don't really use it outside of our narrow careers. Um, so yeah, definitely this, this is something that, uh, has helped me a lot. Uh, and I always focus on in any like project that I work on, I always focus on my strengths, which are my clinical practice. And I always f fall back on that and my ability to, um, or my experience in reading, for example, medical literature and translating that into actionable tools. And so I think my, the most, uh, the thing that I do well the most is using those tools and applying them to different areas of health and being able to extract clinical tools and, and make them into kind of actionable insights that you can use in a tech context. Um, yeah, uh, super important. I think really underutilized in, in health tech. The flip side to that for doctors who are looking to transition out of medicine and doing other cool stuff is that just being a doctor or just having clinical knowledge of clinical medicine 
isn't really enough, right, in, in this space. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, as a, as, a, as a doctor founder and as someone who's potentially going to be hiring other doctors, what kinds of additional skills do you find really valuable in doctors? What kind of ancillary stuff is useful for them to pick up? That's a really good question. A lot of doctors have um, kind of a lot of ideas, but we lack kind of the knack of like building something from scratch and we like to follow kind of uh, or, or already set rules because that's how we're trained throughout our careers in medical school you have you know you have the you have exams and whatever you go jump through the hoops and then you start your career in training it's the same thing you need to tick all the boxes and that's how you progress to become a consultant or whatever uh, and the startup world is totally different so demonstrating the ability to come up with something that is outside the system and build something that is is outside the system, I think is a, is a really um, important tool because, yeah, I, I think be, being able to, to go between those two modes is really important and maybe demonstrating some kind of evidence that you've done something like that uh, is important. In David Sinclair's book, Lifespan, I think in the first few chapters, he mentions that I'm going to talk about lots of cool stuff in the space of longevity interventions, but fundamentally avoiding the big four diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, Alzheimer's cancer, that's really the bread and butter. That's really where you're going to get the most impact. And I wanted to basically ask you the question of, so there's the basic stuff, right? Eating well, sleeping, exercising, not smoking. And then there's all this other kind of more interesting stuff that we're both interested in. How much do you think is the core stuff that I just mentioned? And how much do you think is all this other cool stuff that's coming out? I think it's 80% is definitely the lifestyle stuff. And the lifestyle stuff is an ongoing thing. You're never going to get it 100% under control. And it changes with time as well. Uh, so it's very dynamic. So yeah, the lifestyle stuff is, is the core. But I, I, the way I look at it is, and this is actually a friend of mine has this kind of a way of, of categorizing interventions for longevity in three different levels. So level one is kind of the stuff with higher evidence, and it's mostly the lifestyle stuff of sleep, nutrition, exercise, avoiding harm and like smoking and alcohol and uh, um, maybe a mental health and stress component there as well. But then the next level is to kind of treat existing medical diseases, and that's kind of where classical medicine falls into and then the level after that which is uh, level three is kind of things that are less um have less evidence behind them but might be available in the future and these are kind of uh, interventions that target the aging process itself and we can categorize that into two kind of super futuristic which is maybe epigenetic pro reprogramming and that kind of stuff and things that are actually available today but maybe don't have the uh, evidence that we want stuff like rapamycin, metformin, and compounds like NMN, resveratrol. Uh, we can go through those if you want. I, I, I think um, rapamycin might be a potential anti-aging drug. Uh, the rest are probably more hype than anything. Yeah, what's um, in terms of that and also in the whole space of longevity, where do you think the hype is and where do you think the substance is in the things beyond um, the, the group one things you were talking about? Yeah, I think there's a lot of hype um, in the longevity space. But kind of, there's always like the, you know, super optimists who hype things up a bit. And then there's the pessimists who are like, yeah, this is bullshit. Uh, 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 longevity is just another grift. Um, and I think the, the pessimists are, are kind of right on most things right now, but the, the optimists are the ones who will probably push this uh, field forward. And 
there's definitely a lot to be done in the longevity field that hasn't been done yet. So I think it's still in the in its infancy. Now, what is uh, real and what is uh, not? The two two main things that I see people uh, mistakes that people make are confusing mechanistic evidence for uh, clinical evidence. So if you have a evidence of that something works mechanistically, you have a nice theory behind it, but you don't have clinical trials, randomized clinical trials that uh, show benefit with like hard outcomes, then you can't really make that call that this is an actual beneficial substance. Um, now, but in some cases to do a randomized con clinical control trial is, is difficult. So you need to kind of rely on less qu uh, lower quality evidence. So for example, rapamycin, has quite high, uh, high level of evidence in mice and in, in, uh, um, in other organisms, but doesn't have uh, a lot of evidence that f of benefit for longevity in humans. But the reason for that is because there ha haven't been, the trials haven't been done. So in that case, uh, what do you do? Do you rely on the animal studies and maybe, uh, you know, prescribe it or wait until the clinical trials are done. Um, and I think it comes down to an individual basis. If the person is well informed and understands what the risks are and that the benefits are, might not be there, then there is potentially a role for, you know, things like uh, these experimental substances like rapamycin or metformin to be used in clinical practice even today. So metformin is probably less of an issue because metformin is a very safe drug and has, is, is used widely. Uh, rapamycin is, is not used widely, especially in the UK and liability laws in the UK are a bit more strict. So I think in the UK, there's people are way more apprehensive to like uh, prescribing things like rapamycin. Adam, one problem or one thing that I come across from being in hospital is very much the feeling that you described of putting out fires and sometimes there's a patient who's come in and they're coming in for some kind of intervention and they're quite old and there's just a lot of stuff going wrong basically medically with both the medical side and lifestyle side and you just think what am I really doing here or what is the hospital doing they might go to the cath lab they might have an operation and they're going to be straight back in a few years with the next problem and the thing I always think of is just you know, the phrase like, a, uh, is it cheetah never changes its spots or a leopard never changes its spots or whatever. Um, yeah. It's just how do you influence someone to change their behavior when it's it's just so ingrained and there's just so much that's got, gone into it. And I wanted to ask for your take on that from two perspectives. One, you know, building a digital intervention like Span Health, so from the side of behavioral psychology and those kinds of things. And then the other just on a clinical side, how do you kind of counsel someone? How do you coach them to improve their lifestyle habits? Yeah, I was going to get into that maybe because when we talked about the, you know, how important are the lifestyle stuff versus the more like clinical interventions and, you know, obviously the lifestyle stuff is more impactful and has more evidence at the moment. But the problem is it's for when you look at averages, most people don't really are not really interested and don't have the motivation to, to follow the lifestyle stuff. Um, so is the solution here to find clinical or chemical alternatives to the lifestyle stuff that might help uh, with these, uh, with, um, with people like that, or do we use kind of psychological and, uh, tech based solutions? And that's 
what we try to do at Span. We try to to build a uh, um, and the, the the way we approached it, we were uh, focused very much on habits. So you would log your habits, your daily habits, and then your coach would start modifying those habits one week at a time. And we would start introducing new habits and we would habit stack on, on top of an existing habit. And we would do one intervention at a time and, and measure the uh, impact that intervention had on uh, your metrics. And that the aim with that is to see if, the, if there is a positive impact, then that closes that uh, kind of habit loop of doing the action and then seeing the uh, outcome. And that's what wearables do. They shorten that cycle of seeing the outcome and th that reinforces the behavior and builds a, a habit. But it's a step before that is, is automation of your environment. So uh, the best thing to do is automate your environment and so you don't even have to rely on habits. And you can do that with simple things like, for example, um, we advised uh, people to, we advise, I, I advise people, people to um, dim their lights at night, right? So, so you, you have less circadian rhythm disruption and that can improve sleep. So for people with sleep problems, even people with, who don't have sleep problems, um, the way you can do that is you can kind of build a habit of dimming lights at night, or you can replace your light bulbs with uh, automated light, bu light bulbs that um, you set to go dim at a certain time at night. So that, that way you're automating your environment to do something that you don't even have to build a habit for. So that's step one. And then after that, he's building habits. So, um, and the, the way I think about interventions is, uh, I think about, um, the benefit versus the cost of the intervention. So I would start with interventions that have the highest benefit regardless of cost. So if you have a medical condition right now that can be resolved, even if it's going to cost you a lot, you should do it as soon as possible, regardless of cost. Exercise is one of those interventions that is high in cost. It's not high in cost money-wise, but it's high in cost time-wise because you have to uh, exercise for nearly an hour a day at least, um, or, or most days. So that's kind of, uh, it's a lot of time, but it's worth the commitment because the reward is going to be high. Um, then after that, I would focus on things that are maybe less cost, but high benefit. Um, so in this category, things like uh, diet, weight loss, stuff like that. After that, it w there would be things like, you know, lower benefit and lower cost, things like, uh, you know, a cheap supplement, vitamin D supplement or whatever. Um, and then at the end of the, uh, of the pile would be things with unproven benefit or low benefit, high cost. So high cost uh, supplements, for example, um, that are, you know, might help, might not. But the problem is a lot of people like flip that. They start with the, these kind of, uh, unproven supplements that are easy to take, but they're probably quite expensive, but they forget, they forget that they, they, can, they should be starting with the low hanging fruit of high benefit, um, interventions. So yeah, we, we focus on those and we, then we try to build that habit and, um, step by step, slowly uh, introduce those into, um, the person's life. So that all sounds incredible, but what do you do with someone who, uh, doesn't have the motivation necessary to, so they've come to you into the hospital environment and they don't want to change. How do you tackle that issue? Yeah. So then I would maybe focus on interventions that require less time commitment. 
So if you start with the small things, like, as I said, like it depends on what you're trying to treat. Um, but if you're starting with kind of uh, environmental changes, uh, and then build on those, that would probably be my approach. Um, but at the end of the day, many people who do develop uh, chronic conditions, um, develop them because they, they may, might lack that motivation and it's a big problem. Um, and I don't think there is a solution really, um, other than trying to, you know, put the word out there and come up with these kind of, uh, uh, easy ways of implementing, um, you know, important, uh, healthcare interventions. Yeah. I've long had the view that you can't motivate someone to do something that, that they don't themselves want to do. And I, I don't know what the solution is either. Yeah. It's a, it's a really difficult problem to solve. I wanted to talk a little bit about your opinions and your personal habits in terms of testing and investigations and that sort of thing. There's a, vi a viral tweet by an MD called uh, Dr. Peter Diamondus. And in that he talked about what he does every year. And that included heart and lung CT, full body MRI, whole genome sequencing, echocardiogram, and a host of clinical blood tests. Um, and to be fair, this is the kind of thing that at least in the UK environment would be laughed at by doctors as totally unnecessary and potentially harmful. But I was looking at his website. He mentioned that from doing this with his clients, that in 2% of patients, he's found undiagnosed cancers, 2.5% undiagnosed aneurysms, 9% coronary artery disease, and 14% had significant issues requiring immediate intervention. So where do you sit on this whole testing issue with, with that in mind? Yeah, I think it depends on two things, your budget and also how much you want to know. Some people can develop health anxiety and, you know, the, the more information you give them that just builds up their anxiety and, um, uh, th that might not be for them, but I personally want to know more and, um, the more I know the better. So I would fall in, in the category of t doing all those tests, um, and looking, even if you find something that is, uh, um, an incidental finding that might not be of any significance, I would rather uh, take that risk. Uh, but going into it, you, you should know that there is a risk of finding, um, so the problem with these kind of, uh, screening tests that are, um, not indicated for, uh, for most people is that you're at risk of finding, uh, for example, incidentalomas, which are kind of, uh, tumors that are of unknown significance that can in introduce anxiety to the person. They might need to go on to further more invasive procedures like biopsies to understand what these lesions are, uh, and then eventually finding out that, you know, it's, it's nothing to, uh, to worry about. And if you didn't know about it from the beginning, you, nothing would have changed. Uh, but as you said, um, there is those, that small percentage that you might find actually, uh, something that, um, you know, that was undiagnosed and uh, people do find cancers that are like, uh, uh, spread, uh, you know, stage four cancers or whatever. And if you, they did find these cancers earlier, then that was probably better. So I think there's a happy medium between the two, but it, it also de depends on the person and on your budget. So a lot of these tests are quite expensive. So if you have the spare money to spend on it, uh, then I would go for it. But if not, um, I would start with the, uh, basic stuff, which are cardiovascular markers, uh, things like weight, f fat percentage, kind of general health markers. I mean, there's, there are a few, there, there are many t 
tests that you can do that are quite cheap that you can start with that can tell you a lot. Um, yeah, so I think I would start with the uh, cheap blood tests um, and then maybe functional tests. So, for example, uh, so functional tests are mostly kind of uh, fitness-based tests, and they, you know, you don't have, you don't need to do any uh, uh, special tests for that. Um, VO2 max is a is a really informative test because it gives you your level of uh, kind of cardiac fitness. And changing VO2 max can actually have a large, like a really big uh, impact on your health um, and your and longevity. So I think those are tests that everyone should do at some point in their after maybe 30 or 40. But then when it goes to, to more kind of expensive tests like whole body MRIs, blah, 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 um, probably later in life, maybe there's a role for them. Whole genome sequencing, probably once uh, in a lifetime, you should do it just to know, make sure that you're, you don't have any kind of um, big genetic variants that uh, you should know about. Uh, yeah, so it depends on the person, depends on the budget. Can I ask about your own personal testing stack? Yeah, I mean, I'm relatively young, so I'm, I haven't done that much. Uh, I use wearables, so I use a Whoop band to monitor my uh, uh, sleep, HRV, um, heart rate, etc. I uh, use an 8Sleep mattress that also gives me these uh, markers. Um, so that's for kind of my fitness markers. But then I do bioelectrical impedance tests every few months which is not super accurate, but it gives you a bit of a di directional evidence to, uh, towards your body fat percentage. And I pair that with my weight every few months as well. I probably less uh, every maybe a month I measure my weight. Um, and then blood tests. Um, I do quite extensive blood tests, but uh, that's just my personal preference. Um, and I like to do the uh, do a few epigenetic tests that are biological age tests that are um, blood-based. So you kind of populate your blood uh, markers into these uh, algorithms that give you like your biological age. Um, they're also not super actionable, but um, I, I like to experiment with them because I'm interested in the space. Any imaging? No, uh, I haven't, haven't done any imaging. I think from the business side, one of the issues with the stuff we were talking about earlier in terms of people privately going ahead and doing whole body MRIs and CTs and various things is at least in the UK, the problem is that a private company can sell this test and then kind of throw the patient onto the NHS for all the follow-up uh, investigations and hassles. So I don't know. I don't know where it's because part of me is like autonomy do whatever you want as long as you're paying for it. But the other part is, well, then you should probably be responsible for the follow-up as well. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to healthcare economics, it definitely doesn't make sense um, to do these tests. Uh, but the thing is, like, healthcare economics are driven by averages. And so if you, for example, if an expensive test will only uh, detect one case in, in a million, then it's not economically viable. So it shouldn't be done on an average. But uh, if you have that, uh, you know, have the means and you want to do that test, even if it's a, a chance of one in a million that you'll detect something that is actionable, um, then you, you should be able to do that. I wanted to ask about the period of time when maybe you were working on SPAN and you're also practicing medicine. And I wanted to just ask about A, how hard were you working? And B, how were you balancing the two? Like, how was all that 
working together? It's really difficult. Um, so I would basically work at the hospital in the morning and then work at night um, on span. Uh, yeah, I'm a, maybe a bit of a workaholic, so um, it's not a lifestyle that I would recommend to everyone. But I think at so, some like certain periods in your life, being a workaholic might be a good thing. <laughs> and was there any kind of tricks or anything that you were doing to make that all work? Or was it that you just putting, putting the grind in? I think it's more just about the grind, but it's also about finding the right people to work with as well. So, uh, I think one of the things that I do well is partner with the right people, um, and not try to do everything myself. Uh, th that's, I think a, re a really, um, important thing to do as a, as a, as someone who's uh, working at a day job and having their own side business or you know, for doctors in general, um, yeah, just focus on what you kind of do well and, and find the right people to, to work with. And the last thing I wanted to ask was in the space of longevity medicine, are there any books, resources, podcasts, newsletters, anything that you would recommend to uh, find the signal from the noise? Yeah, PubMed is a pretty good <laughs> source. <laughs> so that's where I go. Uh, if I want to learn about anything, I don't read books. Books about health are not worth reading, in my opinion. They're always super biased. They're based on outdated data and studies. Um, yeah, medicine is just so like quickly evolving and there's like so much like amazing work on, you know, publicly available research papers that it's just like, um, it's insane. Like the, people put their entire life's work into, into like a few pages and it's available for free or like for cheap on PubMed. So yeah, that's where I go. I hope you enjoy that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. And by the way, some of these podcasts are now going to be in video format. So you can find that on Spotify or on YouTube. Thanks for listening. <laughs>